Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, Merry Christmas. Thank you. Is that on? Yeah. Okay. Well, if we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm Robbie Itterberg. I'm one of the pastors, and tonight we're asking ourselves the question, who's coming for Christmas? And I was thinking about this as I was watching National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation again last night, which has to be watched multiple times throughout the season. And there's this moment in the movie where the camera is focused in on the front door of Clark and Ellen Griswold's house from the inside, and it slowly zooms in as the doorbell rings. And as it gets closer, you start to hear the voices on the other side of the door, and you hear, finally, ominous bells chiming. Because as Clark opens the door and greets with a Merry Christmas, there are both sets of in-laws on the front porch, arriving at the same time, already at each other's throats. And this was all Clark's design. He had hoped to have the perfect family fun, old-fashioned Christmas. Well, as they come in, you get all of what I think are caricatures, but these typical and fantastic greetings from the grandparents, right? Oh, look how big you've become, and squishing the cheeks and rubbing the noses, and you know, then Ellen trying pleading with her mom, you promised not to, you promised, you promised, come on, don't do it. And then you get this moment of, you know, they took a pint of fluid out of my lower back. And then Clark's mom leans in and says, see this mole? Yeah, this one, this mole right here on my neck. Is it changing colors? And Clark says, well, you're touching it. You keep touching it. So it's getting redder and redder. And they complain about hemorrhoids. And who's going to park the cars where? And this is all within like the first 30 seconds of welcoming them for Christmas. Finally, they all kind of go further into the house. And Clark and Ellen are left in the foyer by themselves. And Clark declares... This is what Christmas is all about. (laughs) Who's coming for Christmas, right? And then he offers to go park the cars, check the luggage, oh, and then adds, yeah, I'll be outside for the season. (laughs) Right, who's coming has a whole lot to do with then how you will react, how you'll respond, how you will receive them, doesn't it? Because some guests are really easy. They're really just a delight to have. And some guests are a little more difficult. Some you long to come and others you long to leave, if we're honest about it. Don't look around if those guests are with you tonight as you're thinking about who's coming for Christmas. And and as we together are here in this room thinking about this question, who's coming for Christmas? Uh, Of course, we're thinking about Jesus, right? Jesus has come for Christmas. He came for that first Christmas so long ago, and Jesus comes for Christmas again to us this evening. But the question is, who is this Jesus that's come? And how do we receive him? How are we to receive him? And those questions are what are going to be framing our thoughts as we jump into our other passage of Scripture. This is from Matthew chapter 2, 
And you can, if you want, follow along on the screens, but let's listen for God's word for us tonight. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on, from, on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And let's pray as we move into this. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this night to gather this Christmas celebration. We thank you for your word. I ask that you would bless us as we have read it and heard it. Bless it as we seek to receive it and move among us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So these two passages really set the stage, right, for the nativity, the classic nativity scene. And in that, we could be asking ourselves, who is coming for Christmas? And as Luke outlines, Jesus is coming, and he comes as Savior and as Messiah, or Christ the Lord. And Matthew adds to that as the Magi come along, though it was probably not at the exact same time, but that's okay for our nativity scenes. And he layers on there that Jesus comes as king of the Jews. Now, how are we to receive him, though? That's the heart of the question. He's coming, but how are we to receive him? And if we take the cues from the passage, from that nativity scene, we get the angels. And the angels, they sing. They're praising God in the highest heavens for what he has done in the birth of this child. The shepherds. We're told, hear the news and drop everything. And they go and look for him and try to figure out, is, is it how they've been told? And when they find the child just as they had been told, they're in awe and wonder. And they go and they tell everybody about it. They can't help it. And they too walk away praising and glorifying God. Now the Magi are interesting because the Magi have to search for him until they can find him. And actually their search probably was going on for years and years. Because these magi were likely not from Israel. As a matter of fact, they were probably, as they were named magi, were from a region north and east of Israel. But they had somehow become familiar with the prophecies of the Jewish faith. 
As a matter of fact, a lot of the world at the time understood and the, the prophecies that were talking about a king who would come among the Jews, a king who would rise up and wouldn't just be a king for the Jews, but would be a king who would bring peace and prosperity and hope and restoration really for the nations of the world. So they were longing for that kind of peace. And the nations were longing, a lot like I think the nations still long today for that kind of peace. And so they had been looking not just to the scriptures and the prophecies, they also were told they're looking to the sky, aren't they? As they eventually see this strange star that rises and they take it as a sign that God is doing something, that he's finally perhaps fulfilling this promise, they understand that this star means the king is coming. And so they go and they follow the star. And it probably took them like four months of following this star to go from their homeland to finally get to Jerusalem. An incredible cost of time and money. And there was probably a whole caravan of people. And apparently somewhere along the line, the star just kind of disappeared from their sight. As they end up in Jerusalem but aren't sure where to go from there, have to go find Herod to tell them where the child will be born. You know, and, and it's just interesting, I was thinking about this, how sometimes in our lives, the, the things that are our guiding lights, our, our guiding principles, the things that give us a sense of true north of how we're to live our life, which way we're to go, sometimes those kind of get, get somewhat fuzzy. We lose sight of them. They disappear. Send us into places of doubt and chaos and turmoil and fear. And what do we do in those moments? I think the invitation from this passage is to remind us to keep searching. Like we all end up in those places. And so keep searching to go look for the thing that was the, the longing of their heart. That's what they were going to see. This king was the longing that they had had for years and years and years. And so they end up in Jerusalem, talk to Herod, and find out he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And they make their way to Bethlehem. And when they finally see the baby Jesus, what do they do? What was their first reaction? We're told they bowed down and worshipped him. You ever bow down before someone? Can you imagine bowing down before someone? It feels like a pretty vulnerable posture to be in. But it was this expression of worship. And then they give him these incredible gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Really valuable gifts. Expensive gifts. All of it is an expression of their worship. And that, that word worship for, for us as it comes to us in English actually comes out of Old English. From a word literally that was worthship. In other words, worship has to do with ascribing worth to something. So we, you can ascribe worth to all sorts of things. Some have low worth, some have high worth. Right? You think about, you know, if you found something in your attic or your parents' attic that you think, you know, hey, I wonder what this is. I wonder if it has any value. And you take it to an appraiser, you take it to a pawn shop, or you take this. They're going to ascribe worth, ascribe value to that thing. They're going to worship that thing. Now, they might just uh, say it's not worth a whole lot. So the worship might be throw it in the trash can. But it also might be something of an incredible value. And if it was, and you are even startled by it, it's going to change the way you treat that thing, isn't it? The greater the value, it changes the way we interact with that thing or that person. 
And the word specifically that Matthew uses for worship in the story that we read is a word reserved only for ascribing worth and value to deities, to God. And actually, it has to do with ascribing the greatest or the highest worth, the greatest honor, the highest value, which is appropriate to God himself. And so the Magi come and they, they receive Jesus. They realize Jesus has come this first Christmas. They receive him as ultimately Savior, as Lord, as the Christ, as the King of the Jews. And they ascribe to him this incredibly high value and honor. You know, this is so much more than to say they believed in him. Like sometimes we sell it short and just say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. This this is so much more than that. They are saying he is the greatest value, the highest worth person in in their lives. And they're expressing it tangibly, physically. And and when we hear that, okay, yeah, we come to worship Jesus tonight. It's like, I think it's hard for us because we're kind of like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know we worship Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we came to church. That's why we're singing songs. That's why we're praying. That's why we're doing the things that you do when you worship. That's, that's not the full picture of worship. Right? That's, yes, that's good to sing and pray, but to, when we think about ascribing the greatest value and worth, that affects every moment of every day of our lives. And Jesus comes worthy of that, that place and that value. David Platt is a, a pastor, and he tells a story about um, a time when he went to Indonesia, and he was outside a Buddhist temple. And he was there talking with some Buddhist and Muslim leaders, and he was really listening initially to their conversation as they were discussing how they really all religions are basically the same, with only some superficial differences. One of them said, yeah, we may have different views on small things, small issues, but when it comes down to essential issues, each of our religions is the same. And David says he listened for a while until they asked him, you know, what he thought about these things. And he said back to them, he said, well, it sounds as though you both, you know, picture God or whatever you want to call God as sitting at the top of a mountain. And it seems as if you believe that we are all at the bottom of the mountain. And then I may take one route up the mountain and you may take another route up the mountain. But at the end, we're all going to end up at the same place. And the leader smiled back at him. And one of them happily replied, exactly. You understand. You get it. And David leaned in and, and he said, well, now let me ask you a question. What would you think if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain actually came down to where we are? What would you think if I told you that God doesn't wait for people to find their way back to him, but instead he comes to us? And they they thought about this for a moment and they responded, well, that would be great. And David replied, let me introduce you to Jesus. But this is what the Christmas story is all about. It's all about this miracle, right? This miracle that God would actually come down the mountain to pursue us, to come for us, 
Right? Who's coming for Christmas? Jesus. But that's God in the flesh coming to us in our humanity, in our flesh, to show us how much value and worth we have to him. See, when we understand that that unique reality of what God has done through Jesus, when we come to understand that, then we come to understand that he is Savior in a different, whole different sort of way. Because he's come to move towards us, to move towards us in love, and then even to offer himself as a sacrifice to die in our place. To take a place of condemnation, of judgment, that if I'm honest with myself, I really deserve. But he stood in my place so that I didn't have to take it. As he came to us. And we understand him as Lord, who could have waited at the top of the mountain. If he wanted to, he could have waited at the top of the mountain and even just waited with condemnation. Waited to say, you know, come on, get up here. And when we fail, he could simply condemn us. Or he could condemn us for for what David Platt went on to say as he was sharing this story in a book. That God could wait and condemn us, not just for our failure to climb the mountain, but for exalting our supposed ability to get to God in the first place. See, when we come to understand that Jesus is God who came to us, we realize that he's the Lord not looking to condemn us, but he's come as the Lord to save us. And he comes as the king, the king that these magi worshiped, comes as the king not to rule over us, to make us you know, subjects, though we are, not to make us seem small and worthless, but instead to raise us up, to raise our stature. Did you know Jesus grows up? Like, he doesn't stay a baby forever. I know, I know we love Christmas. I love Christmas, and I love babies. But Jesus grew up, and as a man, he went on to tell his followers and to tell anyone who would listen that I've come not to be served, but to serve. In other words, the one who comes as the king comes not just to lord it over you, to rule over you, to make you some sort of slave, but instead to serve you, to love you, to raise you up out of the pit you find yourself in, to give you finally the peace, the joy, the meaning, and the significance that we desperately long for. He came as the king for all the nations. And he was pursuing you. And as we understand that more and more, then perhaps maybe we can ascribe to him the worth and value that he's due when we realize what he's done for us is really what gives us our own worth and our own value in the first place. And so the question of who's coming for Christmas, well, we know Jesus is coming. But are you coming? And are you coming to worship him? Not just for a moment, not just to sing tonight. But in the days and the weeks and the months and the years to come, you coming to give him the honor and the value and the worth that's the highest in all of your life? Because here's the thing. If we do that, that means our priorities, our time, everything we do is going to be filtered through this reality of who Jesus is and how he has come for us. And the thing is, we're all going to worship something that way. It's just a matter of what. Yeah, I had a friend, uh, Bruce Dotter, it was, we were good friends in high school. We played basketball together. And when it, time, it came time to go to college, he went off to this small liberal arts college I had never heard of in Ohio called Kenyon College. I'd never heard of it before, and I hadn't heard of it after until I came across a commencement speech that was given at Kenyon College in 2005. 
The commencement speech was given by a guy named David Foster Wallace. You may be familiar with him. I mean, incredible author, postmodern author, uh, and wrote fiction and nonfiction, and really, I mean, really brilliant guy. As a matter of fact, the only thing often said against him is that he was just too highbrow intellectual. In other words, he's just smarter than the rest of us. But in this commencement address, Foster Wallace says this, he says, in our everyday lives, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And I think he's saying this, and he's not an overt Christian. As a matter of fact, there's lots of questions whether or not he was a Christian at all. And so he's just making these remarks because everybody worships. The only choice, he says, we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, he says, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. We all worship. We all ascribe the highest value and worth to something in our lives. The question is what? And the warning he gives is really the warning of so many of the Christmas stories that we know, right? It's the warning of Scrooge, right? It's the warning of of having the values all out of whack, of pursuing something that will eat you alive and will ruin your soul from the inside out. And the solution in all the Christmas movies, well, replace that with the spirit of Christmas. Typically, to be generous as a human. The problem is, when is enough generosity enough generosity? Even that can become worshiping something that will ultimately eat us alive because we can never do it enough, never be good enough, never be generous enough, never be kind enough. And this was what Herod was doing. This was his problem. He was worshiping power and control. And so when the Magi show up and they announce the good news of this coming king, they don't receive it as, hey, this is great news. Look, the one we've been longing for who's going to bring peace and meaning and joy and purpose and hope for all of us, he doesn't receive that with joy. He he receives it as a threat. Because the thing that he's worshiping of power and control and prestige and prominence is being threatened because he's not the real king. He's just a king serving on kind of more as a steward or a governor under Roman, Roman rule and empire. And the problem when we, we worship these lesser things is in the moment we're like, hey, that's going to finally give me that meaning. That's what he's saying, right? You'll finally tap that meaning in life if I just worship that thing. If I give myself fully and completely to that, if I filter all of my decisions through this thing that has the greatest worth and value, it's going to finally work out. The problem is in those lesser things, We find it doesn't necessarily work out for us. In fact, we find that we can become the the worst version of ourselves. This was true for Herod as he worshiped power and control. Because we know this because if you read the verses that that follow immediately after what I read tonight, Herod's willing to go on and murder every baby under the age of two so that he can hopefully eradicate the threat to his power and control. 
the worst version of himself because he's worshiping the lesser thing. It's eating his soul, right? Eating him alive from the inside out. And all of these lesser things that we would worship will eat us up in the same way. We may not go on to murder like he had, but we'll be willing to sacrifice a whole lot of other things with the attempt to worship the thing that we hold of highest value. And so if it's, if it's achievements, if it's power, if it's money, if it's family, right? The, the pursuit of the perfect Christmas, whew, that'll eat you alive, won't it? Anybody have any stress about the perfect Christmas? Ever had a perfect Christmas? Right? Those things that are lesser that we worship, that we ascribe in the moment, the highest value will eat us from the inside out. But as we worship Jesus, the Savior, Messiah, Lord, King, who came toward us to love us and serve us, we find that we can finally be free from fear of not actually laying hold of what we long for. We can be free of needing anybody else's approval or acceptance. We can be free from being so afraid that we're not going to have what we need. We can be free because we have the deepest longing of our soul satisfied by the only one who can. The only thing and only one that's not temporary. And that's Jesus. And so he's coming for Christmas. Are you coming for Christmas? Are you coming as a fan for a day? You coming as an admirer tonight? You coming as one who respects Jesus for what he taught and was a good man? Are you coming to worship? Are you coming to allow him to transform that soul that's getting eaten alive by other things, to let him satisfy you deeply and find in that the highest value and then ascribing it to him? Jesus told a story about a man who was walking through a field and he found this buried treasure of incredible worth. And he was so excited to find it that what he did was he went and he sold everything he owned to go and buy this field. You gotta imagine his family is like, what are you doing? Nobody else knew that the treasure was there. His friends are like, you're crazy. You sold everything for what? This plot of land? And he goes and he scoops up that treasure out of the ground and rejoices because he knows that what he has is such incredible and infinite value compared to everything else he just gave away. Tonight, will you ascribe that worth to Jesus? Will you grab hold of the one who has moved toward you, who has pursued you, who's come after you as Savior, as Lord and King? Because if you will, you'll experience that same joy of finding the treasure of infinite value, and in the at the same time, you'll find your real value. As he gives you worth, you can then ascribe him the ultimate worth that he's due. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the miracle of Christmas, that you didn't just wait for us to try to get to you you didn't just wait for us to condemn us in our failure. But instead, you moved toward us in our brokenness, in our sinfulness, in our rebellion. You came down the mountain as our Savior, as our Lord, as our King, to serve us, to heal us, to forgive us. 
Lord God, tonight may that truth come to us in a new way. May our familiarity with the Christmas story not cause us to, to dismiss all of this as just as words that we know, but instead may this reality of what you've done for us to give us value and worth, may that overwhelm our willingness to worship lesser things, to find ourselves eaten alive in desperation, looking for what is going to truly fulfill, and may we find it, Lord, in you. So we hold fast to you, Jesus, to worship you, ascribe you the highest value and honor. In your name, amen. Amen.